Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, Ben Narasin, a venture capitalist at NEA, one of the most prestigious and looked up to VC firms out there. Ben has a very cool story and is also extremely eloquent. This podcast is super easy to listen to. Wall Street Oasis has been around for 11 years. The site gets a million visitors a month, and they know what they're talking about when it comes to getting a job in investment banking, private equity, or at a hedge fund. Their courses have thousands of crowdsourced questions, proven interview techniques, modeling training, and case studies. So give them a try. They've got a money-back guarantee. Okay, Ben Narison, partner at NEA. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast this morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you have been a longtime entrepreneur, a longtime early-stage investor, pretty prolific with your writing and blogging about uh, venture investing and food and wine. I think your blog is called Venture and Venison. I thought that was funny. Um, So I'd love to get into who Ben is, your background, how you became a venture capitalist. Sure. You want me to start from the very beginning? The very, very beginning. I mean, I don't need the, the lemonade stand or the, the comic book business when you were 12, but, but you know, you kind of had entrepreneurial inklings, and then you went to school, and what do you think you were going to do out of school, that sort of thing? Sure. Well, actually, the comic book business at 12 is relevant, because when I started it, it was sort of the path of entrepreneurship for me that really stuck for quite a while. I, it turned into, I basically took a $50 loan, and over six years turned it into a $100,000 GMV business. So it was the first experience I had in figuring out that entrepreneurship was something I was passionate about. But fundamentally, I ran businesses all through high school and college, and they varied tremendously. I was just sort of questing to find that business that would be the thing that fulfilled me. Although I think I primarily was motivated by financially, um, you know, just financial gain. And the comic book business was a passion business. It happened to have great financial gains attached. Some of the other businesses were less so. So when I graduated from college, I started a clothing company because that was something I was really fascinated by. It was the idea of sort of men's fashion was just personally, I cared about how I looked and how I dressed. And I seemed to be one of the only ones, but it seemed like there was a business there. So I built a menswear company for about six years that did very well. It was what I now understand to be called a quote unquote lifestyle business. Um, But at the sort of tail end of that, or what became the tail end of it, the business was actually doing quite well. Berners-Lee came out with WWW, and I thought, 
that would change the world. I mean, the web was the biggest thing in my lifetime, as far as I can tell at that moment in time. So I pretty much abandoned this very profitable lifestyle business to start one of the first internet companies, the first e-commerce companies in 1993. And I ended up being able to take that company public in 99. That was a very long and hard slog because I didn't really raise any outside capital. I raised about $100,000 of outside capital, and I was able to put in about $400,000 of my own money from the business that I had been running before that. Um, interestingly enough, I gave the investor 20% of the company for that 100 grand, even though I matched them and had been running it for a year. But it was a great, great journey, great outcome. We ended up taking the company public and then taking it private when the world blew up because having not raised venture capital, I still had control. And all that leaded me to ultimately leave New York City and, and move west. And I ended up in the Bay Area about 14 years ago and quickly saw this gap between angel and venture, which is currently called seed investing, but back then didn't have a name. But I'll just point out that while it's been a long and circuitous path to get where I am today, and I'll continue on that, that story in a second, everything I think that I bring to the table as a venture capitalist comes from the experiences that built from me as a 12-year-old kid all the way through to a 37-year-old temporary retiree. You know, that 25-year journey of entrepreneurship is what informs virtually everything I think about when I look at entrepreneurial opportunities. But then there was a new chapter of learnings. I got here. I talked about how I sort of saw this gap in the market that now is called seed. So I started out in that business through running a institutional seed platform for a large venture debt shop. It was about a $3 billion deployed venture debt shop, and I ran their equity program. And that was effectively focusing on finding seed investments that I thought would be um, venture appropriate over time and would be fundable by the top tier venture firms. Part of the rigor of that was that that venture debt firm was very aligned with sort of top 10, top 15 style uh, tier one venture firms. And so the idea that a business on its own would be interesting wasn't enough. It had to be interesting enough to be interesting to that group. So for about eight years, my focus was finding those businesses. And of them, I, I funded about 80 uh, slightly more than half of them raised Series A from Tier 1 firms. So I really was able to learn not just a lot about the type of business that appeals to venture, but I learned a lot about how venture thinks. You know, In addition to the time I spent with entrepreneurs, I was able to get to know over 300 VCs at, at a lot of, of Tier 1 firms and some sort of Tier 2 firms as well that I still think of sort of think about in the wine industry, there's this concept of first among seconds, the very top of the second tier. So, you know, that learning process was incredibly useful because I needed to understand what they needed so I could help my entrepreneurs get to the right people when the time came. And it also helped with my selection process. So after eight years of investing as a seed investor, I had some interesting outcomes that drew people's attention. Um, Lending Club went public and a handful of my companies sold privately for pretty big numbers, about $2 billion-ish of, of private outcomes. And so a variety of firms that I had gotten to know started talking to me about a more traditional role. And I ended up spending two years as a general partner at a small boutique firm and then left there in June of last year and joined NEA in September. NEA has been the firm I've been probably the most enamored of over, over time. I just felt like everybody I got to know there I, I liked and I respected and I liked the way they did business. And when I was funding companies, a big part of what I would do to help was to take them to the right people at the right time. And NEA was almost always in that mix after a relatively short period. So I really appreciated the way they did business, the way they treated their entrepreneurs, the support they provided. And, uh, and you know, it was sort of the perfect destination for me. So it's a, it's a long and circuitous journey. I mean, this is a 
25 years as an entrepreneur plus something in the area of nine years as an investor to get to the job that I probably would have wanted a year after I entered the space uh, isn't quick and it isn't obvious and it isn't a straight line. But I feel very strongly I'm in exactly the right place now. Well, that's then that's fun to hear. That's cool that that journey took you to a great place. You know, that's kind of one of the things that you hear on this podcast is careers are long and you need to have patience. I mean, you need patience and careers are also, life is also short. So you got to be marching towards what you want. And, you know, there's not a lot of sense in doing something that you hate, but you did say something early on in that story about really principally being motivated by financial gain. And that's, you know, kind of within human DNA to do that. But I want to ask you, when you look for a founder, you look for them to be motivated by more than financial gain, right? Like you're looking for them to really, really be, want to solve a big problem. Yeah, that's fair. And, you know, when I think back a bit, I was always, I always had a northern light for what I wanted to be as an individual. Like you use the term marching on, right? Like I always was marching towards a goal. And that goal was in my simple sort of 11 or 12-year-old brain to be this successful business person. And my image of that was somewhat vague. But, you know, as a 12-year-old, I thought that would mean cover of Forbes, owning, I don't know, oil tankers or steel or mines or I don't know, probably not, hopefully not mines. Mines are a terrible business, uh, just the human side of it. But I think that was consistent. What I didn't know was the type of business that could get me there. So when I looked at a business, I thought to myself, would this be a profitable business? So when I look at entrepreneurs, I'm always looking for some northern light. You know, it, it you have to have a financially realistic view of the profitability or ability to get to profitability of a business because without that, you don't run a tight enough ship. You know, things people can get quite lazy. You know, if when, when you have the luxury of being able to lose money, um, that can be a dangerous thing. The luxury of losing money is provided in the service of ultimately making money. Now, having said that, everybody that builds tremendous businesses have a goal, has a goal that is bigger than just the dollars. We sort of all get to the point, I think, but not all of us, but I think a bunch of us do, that the dollars are a measuring stick of the success. They're not the item themselves. And so, you know, there's lots of different ways people want to change the world. That is going to be incredibly important. I've sometimes said, you know, you have to be a little bit crazy, insane, or arrogant to get to the kind of outcome that I need you to strive for. Because, to become as successful and to build a business as large as venture is here to support, entrepreneurs have to say no to some pretty amazing personal outcomes along the way in the journey to the potential for an even bigger one. You know, it would take a, when I say illogical, arrogant, or, or crazy, you know, if you've got a business that can sell for $300 million and you still own half of it, saying no to it takes one of those. But you have to say no to it if you're going to get it to the next level doesn't mean you will definitely get to the next level, but if the promise is there and you still believe. So, yes, people have to be driven by something bigger. Um, and I think almost every entrepreneur I've ever funded has been. Now, some of them have been a bit more driven purely by the dollar outcome. But if somebody's just driven by the dollars alone, it's hard to have the level of passion and energy and commitment that it takes to build the kind of things we see people build. It's a very, very hard thing to be an entrepreneur. It takes an enormous amount of tenacity and it's a stressful role. And, you know, people hear about and read about and, and listen to podcasts about these wonderful outcomes and these things that have happened. But the road that, to get there is a tortuous one. I mean, there is, you know, for every thousand entrepreneurs that have a phenomenal outcome, one might have had it easy. 
And I'd be sort of surprised because I don't think I've ever met that one. Right. And there's also a survivorship bias thing going on there with you're hearing the successful ones on the podcast and you're not hearing, I mean, the, the rates of success are extremely low. So there's a, you're right. It's a, quite a slog. Being yeah, an entrepreneur. And we also tend to sort of, we have a memory bias, which is just human nature to remember the good and sort of breeze past the bad or the, the troubling or the difficult. And I think that's a survival instinct. You know, I used to always say that, you know, we have three children, and I think that if my wife truly remembered the pain of childbirth, it would be surprising that she would be excited about having the second child. And entrepreneurs have a similar path. Like, if you truly remembered all the suffering in there, would you really do it again? But there's a lot of great stuff in there as well, and, and it's it's just people don't tend to focus on the, the things that were hard along the way. I do try to, as an investor and as a board member, remember as many things as I can that caused me hardship because I want to help my entrepreneurs avoid those things. Um, you know, I, I had a great outcome, but I don't pretend that it wasn't just a really, really rocky road. I remember staring into the valley of death of just a being a day and a half away from missing payroll and the, you know, the sheer terror of what am I going to do to survive? How am I going to pay these people the money they are owed? We are just an inch away from disappearing forever. Um, that's not a, a small thing, and I'll, I'll never forget that day or many of the other days that were hard along the way. Right. And internalizing those learnings, basically learning from your failures are important to the entrepreneur. It's also important to you from an investment standpoint. You don't want to invest in losers over and over, right? I think it, if I can help people dodge some bullets, that's a great thing. It, it is hard because you can only learn from experience. The question is, are you going to learn from your own experience or somebody else's? Uh, I, I'm a believer that people that give you advice based on experience can create great value. People that give you advice based on opinion, it's somewhat more questionable. And people that give you advice based on hearsay and uh, are dangerous. So you've got to sort of know where that advice is coming from. And I tend to tell a lot of stories because I want the entrepreneurs to understand this is the explicit instance where I learned this lesson. You can now draw from it as you see fit. Um, but yeah, you if you don't see in somebody... I think of the only secret to entrepreneurial success because I assume phenomenal intelligence is assumed and a great idea is assumed and, you know, a big market is assumed because otherwise I wouldn't have funded it. You know, the, the only secret beyond that is tenacity. If you're willing to give up, you're going to at some point. So I do need to see that drive, that passion, that thing that's going to push you through in incredibly hard times. I remember I had an entrepreneur that was struggling through some really difficult times once and we sat down and I said, well, you got to remember, it always is the darkest before it gets darker. And <laughs> then if you push through, you may find the light, but don't think it's just, it's really dark now and it'll get better because it's usually not that way. It's almost always worse than you expect. Right. Okay. So you said before that you want to invest in entrepreneurs that make you say, wow. And so you're right. There's the big market, great business model, smart person. They're ten tenacious. What else makes you say, Wow. I sort of also have this little pithy saying that, you know, I need five things to make an investment. People, 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 a great idea and a huge market if it works. I think those are the things I care about. I mean, the, the quality of the people is paramount to everything, but phenomenal people without a great idea in a big market, I have found, are not something I can back. It has not worked out for me because there's no guarantee that the person's idea that you don't enjoy will change. Um, they often see that it wasn't the idea with the strength that they deserved, meaning sometimes the idea is below the quality of the person, but the next one might be too. 
Um, so, you know, there's there's a thousand little things. It's It takes a lot to get to yes. It doesn't take much to get to no. Um, usually there's something that stands out almost above all else, but you've got, you still have to have those five components. It's sort of, I'm not convinced there isn't going to be somebody that walks in that is such a compelling person that I don't ignore my own rule and say to myself, even though they don't have their idea buttoned up yet, I, I still want to back this person. Um, but I do think they have to have the whole picture. It, it's sort of, I was talking to a friend at a conference recently who's a VC who's going through some trauma with multiple companies right now. And, you know, his view is almost, I really need to make sure there are no blemishes. And not that there isn't risk. There's a difference between a blemish and a risk, right? So, you know, there's risk is what venture is paid to take. You know, we are in the business of taking rational and hopefully understandable risk in exchange for ridiculous reward. And so we back folks that are going to go out and try to do these incredibly difficult things. They're not impossible things. They wouldn't get done. Someone once said that, you know, the most exciting opportunities are the ones that went from having previously been impossible to now merely being highly improbable. And I think that's a good way of thinking about some of the types of opportunities that are out there. But, you know, so we're in the business of taking risk. But there are, you know, they, I guess it's easier to say what I, I don't want to see. I don't want to see myself trying to talk myself into something where there's eight out of 10 of the things I need. It's not like there's a checklist. It's just call it sort of intellectually, I'm 80% of the way there, but there's 20% of the stuff that's a blinking red light. And for some reason, I'm trying to convince myself that that's okay. That's almost always a mistake. In fact, I would argue I'm not sure it's ever not been a mistake, certainly not for me, and I don't know for others. Whenever, and that's true as an entrepreneur as well. If you're trying to talk yourself into or out of something that you, in your heart, know you should do or shouldn't do, you're making a mistake. Now, you know, you've got people that are thinking about, should I change my career? Should I go from sort of a, a comfortable, highly lucrative job in banking where I can see a steady income rise and create some reasonable material wealth over time and consider being an entrepreneur or moving on to the next chapter? You know, that sort of talking yourself into something is a bit different. When you're trying to decide about making a major life change, but if you can listen to your gut, if you can find a way to know what's true for you deeply inside and trust that, it tends to be the most powerful weapon you can have, either in your decision-making as an investor or in your life's journey. You know, we all have, we know what is, uh, this is a belief of mine, we know what's right. We know what we should do. It's just really hard to do it. That's the journey I think all of us go through from youth to adulthood and beyond. Some people never complete that journey. Some people never get to the point of truly being able to trust their own gut and being able to go forward on that path. It's and I'll stop this little tirade with a comment I make to my son, which is bravery is not about the absence of fear. It's about the absolute presence of fear and yet going forward anyway because you know it's the right thing to do. And the hardest things and the most lucrative things in the world to do, whether that's entrepreneurship or anything else, require bravery. They require going forward with a lot of fear into an unknown into an uncertainty because there is something calling you and you need to do that thing. That is, the, to me, the pinnacle of, of human nature and, and human greatness. Yeah, that probably separates the great ones from the not great ones, that ability to face fear head on, whereas most people would fall back and say, oh, that's scary, I'm not going to do that. But the brave ones say, oh, no, I'm going to face it, I'm going to march forward, I don't know what's on the other side of it, but I'm going to do it. And that's why there's those huge rewards on the other side, because that's that's very rare. Yeah, and not not blind, not oh, I I, I had I'd met some entrepreneurs once, uh, and I said, so tell me about you know how you came up with this idea or you know why you went in this path, and they said, well, there were three of us, we were working at 
famous big company. And one day we decided we wanted to be entrepreneurs. So we quit our job and we've been trying to figure out what to do ever since. And I was like, whoa, that's a little aggressive. If you decided you, quote, wanted to be entrepreneurs, that's a, a, a great, but you had a job. Why don't you just work on figuring out at night and on weekends what that idea is? Why don't you find the thing that's calling you? Like, quote, being an entrepreneur is not, oh, let's look in the newspaper and see where, where people are hiring for that. You know, it's not like you send out a thousand resumes and go on a hundred interviews and just are tenacious and you get the job of entrepreneur. You do actually have to have a compelling idea. And there are plenty of entrepreneurial journeys that do not end in success. And it is going to be, you know, pretty weighted towards the quality of the idea is an important part. It's not everything. People overvalue the sort of value of the idea. Execution is worth five to 10x the idea itself. I mean, you've seen this many, many times over where the same idea gets phenomenally successful in one case and it's an absolute failure in another. And a lot of that is around execution. But, you know, it's having a, a thoughtful approach. Bravery is not blind. You know, it is well thought out. It's just that it's that final jump. It's like I always remember when I was a kid and I went to Greece on vacation and I was everybody was jumping off this cliff into the water and I really wanted to do it and just walking up to the edge and that moment of pause when you look down and having to convince yourself that you know it's safe because everybody else just did it, and you just have to jump. You know, that's the moment. You already climbed the hill. You already walked across the cliffside. You already got to the edge. You looked at the water. You saw the person beforehand. The moment of bravery in becoming an entrepreneur is not, I'm just going to become an entrepreneur and I do it. It's all that journey up, and then you decide to make that jump. That jump is the hardest part. Right. Well, the beginning until everything else gets really hard. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I like I like the way you're describing that. So another question here. As a venture capitalist, you're on the cutting edge of what's new and what's going to change the world. And you're speaking with enlightened founders that have these passionate dreams. So I'm sure people come to you and say, like, what's hot right now, Ben? What should I what should I be looking at? But you say that's that's the wrong question. Yeah, I have um, this memory of uh, an entrepreneur of mine who had gone down a path and it hadn't worked out. And he said, hey, you know, can I sit with you and talk about some of my ideas? And I was like, absolutely. And um, we sat down and I said, well, before we go through any of this list, why don't you just tell me what's hot now? And I said, you know, that is absolutely the wrong question. Whatever's hot now is almost certainly too late for you. Now, maybe in a broad categorical sense, you know, the web came along and the web was hot or, you know, I don't know, crypto is hot right now, although it's not a place that I focus on. But if something's already being attacked aggressively, if it's hot now, really hot, then it's been being done for a while, and it's going to take you a while to ramp. So, you know, I would think about it more as you need to find that thing that's going to be hot tomorrow. You know, like what is that, that opportunity that you find and see? The most exciting things are the things that somebody spots before other people do. It's very rare you find something where only one person has spotted it. Usually what happens is somebody pitches you a really great idea, and you spend time on that one, and you do discover that one or two people have also miraculously started to focus on the same thing. It's just sort of the, I don't know, law of large numbers or some interesting thing in the world that that's how stuff works out. You know, the conflation of all these different elements of time and, and invention and other things have enabled something to finally happen, and more than one person figured that out. But it's, I often encourage my entrepreneurs to just go away and think. You know, find the place where they think well. Find their, quote-unquote, hill or mountain, you know, think like a cross-legged Buddha sitting up there thinking. I don't mean that literally. It's just wherever it is that you find your best thinking happening. I happen to think well when I'm driving. 
but I love to be on a beach looking at the ocean waves and just thinking. I mean, there's like when I need time to think, where can I go and find it? I, I like standing in the sunlight, staring at the Golden Gate Bridge in between meetings and just, you know, or the, the other bridges in, around different places like when I'm in New York or in, in San Francisco. So find a place of peace and and just spend the time thinking. And hopefully you'll reach at some point, might not take an hour, might not take a day, might not take a week, might not take a month. Might take a year. I mean, who knows how long this will take? But you, you sort of are looking for the epiphany. You're looking for that epiphany where you see that moment of, wow, that, that would be great. By the way, the other thing I will tell you is you usually come up with these things when you're not thinking about them. I mean, sort of a classic saying, but, you know, you, you spend all this energy and time thinking and exploring and researching and, you know, looking at markets, and that builds up a base. But then one day when you don't expect it, something pops into your head. And this has been documented in, in great science all the time. There's this I think of it as, I call it gut, you could call it self, you know, subconscious. You train your brain with all sorts of material, and sometimes when you're not pushing your brain to think about something is when the stuff comes up. That doesn't mean you can just sit around lazily and just hope this really phenomenal idea shows up. All that research and thought and inquisitiveness will be additive to ultimately what you come to. Um, but I would sort of argue you want to set the bar pretty high. If you don't think what you come to is great, then I wouldn't bother. Because if you just think, well, that might work, that seems okay, that seems like a pretty strong pass to me, and why would you invest yourself in it? Right. So this is having the idea while you're in the shower. But I can also say that I don't think you're going to have the idea while you're on your phone looking at Facebook. Uh, you know, we don't really allow ourselves, at least I don't, allow myself enough time to be without my phone. Like, you need to just be sitting there doing nothing sometimes. And we don't really let ourselves do that very much anymore. I agree. And I think... You know, recently, for some reason, a lot of people have asked me the question of what to read, and the concept and discussion around reading has come up quite a bit. Um, I'm a big fan. I, it's funny, when I was an entrepreneur, I had a lot less time to read, and so, you know, when you're just getting stuff done, you don't necessarily have the luxury. But I think the more broadly you can read, the better. I, you know, I'll give you an example. I will often, I live close to a library, so I'll walk to the library and I'll check out six or eight interesting books, hard science, science fiction, nonfiction sometimes a novel, and I'll just sit down and, and read a chapter or two of each and see if I care. And the ones I do, I, I keep reading. The ones I don't, I give back. Um, sometimes that first chapter or two is enough. You know, there was a book called Blink, um, you know, where, you know, or some of these books that have been well thought of, which I, and I do like that book, you know, I guess Crossing the Chasm could even be another one. You can get the idea pretty quickly, uh, you know, predictably irrational. Like, you know, a couple of chapters in, I'm getting the meat of the core idea. Now, could I learn more from reading the whole book? Almost certainly. Do I need to? Well, it depends on the balance of my time availabilities. So if you're a person that can't start a book without finishing it, you feel obligated, then that model won't work. But I have stacks and stacks and stacks of books all over my house. I have a whole library full of books, and the vast majority of them aren't finished. And I can also read multiple books at once where I'm just sort of picking them up again later, and I remember where I was, and okay, great, that's fine. But, you know, it's... I like to taste. I'm a big taster. Uh, that's true with how I approach wine. It's also true with how I approach books. The more and more diverse things you can read about, you know, there was an old concept long ago of, um, you know, hoovering, where you go to a trade show and you just hoover up all the stuff that looks remotely interesting so you can read it on the plane home that a writing coach of mine gave me. Or when I was younger, they're like, you know, try to go into the bookstore and look at as many magazines as you can on topics that you don't even care about. And I'm, it's a great thing. I have... Uh, Zinio and Hoopla, both through my library, by the way. So for no cost at all, I can read 20 books a month online, and I can download over 250 magazines a month. It's truly amazing. It's a really awesome service. 
And so I'll download magazines that I'm only vaguely interested in, and I'll read through it, and sometimes that'll spawn a new idea. You know, sometimes I'll meet with an entrepreneur that'll be talking about something that I'll have learned about in some random tangential piece of interest I had picked up from something. I think it creates better conversations. I think it creates a, you know, it's a fine-tuning of your mind. You're not, think of them, I'd hate to go to CrossFit because people that do CrossFit always talk about it, but, you know, the sort of always approaching your muscles with different attacks, you know, different exercises, crossing over into lots of things to keep your body constantly guessing so that it's overall fit. Same thing is true for your brain. You know, if you study one thing all the time, you might be very, very good at that, but I think you weaken yourself in a lot of other ways. Monoculture, you know, if you, the potato famine, one type of potato that was the most productive and all of a sudden you've got an entire country at risk and lots of people die versus a multitude of plants that can feed off of each other and create diversity. Biodiversity for the mind, I think, is a, a hugely valuable thing for spawning thought. Oh, that's just another way of saying yes. Don't stare at your phone all the time. Find other things to do. <laughs> well, okay. I like that. Then, so this will be the last question. We always end with advice. I'm going to say that this entire conversation has been very rich in advice, but is there anything you can look back on over your career and you're talking to, I don't know how old your, your kids are now, but say you're talking to your, one of your kids and he's about to graduate college and he's not quite sure what he wants to do. He went to a good school. He can get a good job. You know, he's not sure what his passion is yet. What do you what do you tell someone like that? You know, it's, I have a 20-year-old, an 18-year-old, and a 14-year-old, and the conversation comes up from time to time, and I'm not sure I do a great job of helping them. I think that when you're young, it is hard to know what you want to do. I think in a lot of ways, I was very lucky to have a really clear vision of what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be ever since I was quite young. But only in a general form, not in a specific way. It will find you. There's lots of little, you know, common sense sayings generally tend to be based on something useful. And one of them that I've always liked is do what you love and the money will follow. You know, if you're anchoring everything on the dollars, then it's going to be hard to achieve any personal happiness. But it's also going to be hard to achieve in an absolute sort of limit of your own ability. There's another version of that saying, which is when you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. You know, like I get up every day really excited and happy you know, I want to come in and hear more pitches. I want to come in and work with entrepreneurs. I want to, you know, like, I love what I get to do. And that's been true for much of, if not all of my life. There might be one exception in there um, because I've almost never had a job. But, you know, it was incredibly hard, but it was very enriching. You know, you want to do something where when you get up, you're excited to do it. And that's how you get through the hardship. When you're truly in love with that thing that you're doing. I say of of marriage that you need the three L's, you need love, like, and lust. They all have to exist for a, what I think of as an awesome and wonderful marriage and just my own view of life. I think the same thing is true of your career. You have to like what you're doing. You have to love what you're doing. And in some ways, you have to lust for what you're doing. You know, there's there's that level, that multi-layered level of just commitment to it in all types of different ways. If And to just put a pin in that, if the quote-unquote lust of this was the lust for money, but you despise what you do day by day, or you don't even respect it, then ultimately I just think that's corrosive, and it might make you plenty of money, but I don't think it'll get you as far as you could go. People have done tremendously well with virtually anything you can imagine. You know, think of the success level. Cirque du Soleil, someone that decided they want to start a circus, or Spank, someone that did underwear. You know, like... There's just, you could find a thousand people that have made money doing things at an exceptionally high level that no one would have thought as anything more than their passion. You know, DJs today make stunning amounts of money when they do it well. Pick the thing that you love 
and dive into that and find a way to make a living in it is a very reasonable approach to doing things. You will find a way if, in fairness, I say you will find a way because I am assuming a significant amount of intelligence and drive and tenacity and everything else. So I will close with one other point. Entrepreneurship isn't for everybody. It is incredibly hard. If you are going to give up, if you are even considering that you might, you already have. So just don't bother. You know, part of it is thinking about your own drive and personality and ability to suffer through hardship and and going through that. And is there something, and that goes back to the very early point you made, what drives you down that road? What is that thing you're committing to? What is that thing that's bigger than you that will take you through? If you have that in you already and you know what it is, then chase it. And if you've got all those personality traits, you've got a great chance of doing something awesome. But never forget that the risk is, is there. The risk is there financially. But I guess I said I'd close with that point. I'll close with a different one. Entrepreneurship is wonderful because even when you fail, you learn more than you would in the same period of time in any job. A year as an entrepreneur, a year as part of a founding team of a small company, you're going to have more experiences there than you're going to have for five years in a traditional corporation. And generally, that asset, that knowledge, that wisdom, those learnings is something that not just you will value over time tremendously, but that other people that would want to recruit you or hire you will enjoy as well. You're stacking your own deck. You're adding a piece of distinction that's not an easy one to achieve. And it's well worth the journey if it's right for you. Well said, Ben. This was a lot of fun speaking with you. Uh, You did a great job. Thanks so much for coming on here. Thanks for having me. Okay. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much for listening today. If you have any thoughts or advice for me, I'd love to hear it. Send me an email, alex at wallstreetoasis.com, or just leave a review on iTunes. Thanks.